and I guess the um, the COVID-19 outbreak and the way we treated them during this period, I guess the lesson needs to be taught to all of us, not just employers, not just government, but all of us in Malaysia to see their contribution. I think the, the problem that we have in Malaysia, we want them, but we don't value them. Right. Until you lose them, then you will say, okay, we regret that we, we are now don't have the Indonesian and Bangladeshi workers, right, right. to support the, the industry. Please listen carefully. Hello and welcome to iMigrant podcast, which is dedicated to highlighting the stories of migrants and advocates as well as cross-cutting human rights issues across East and Southeast Asia. The iMigrant podcast is an initiative of BBC Network, Better Engagement Between East and Southeast Asia. BBC is a cross-regional platform for migrants, their loved ones, supporters, and advocates in and from these regions to build a stronger network and collaboration among individuals and civil society actors cross-regionally in order to advocate for better protection of human rights and inclusive and safe governance of migration. You can find BBC on social media platforms like Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. BBC Share, Connect and Collaborate. This episode is a part of series focusing on COVID-19's impact on migrant workers in their major destinations in East and Southeast Asia, following up the cross-regional joint research conducted as part of BBC initiative. Throughout this series, we will host this podcast with the coordinator of this research to hear from each field researcher about the situations in their place, their experience, and updates on recent developments. So I'm your host, Andy. I graduated with an MA in Southeast Asian Studies, and today I'm with Mariko. Mariko is research coordinator of this repression and resilience book. Hi, Mariko. How are you doing? Hi, Andy. Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you today. Um, how are you? I'm I'm doing great here in in Hamburg, Germany. Uh-huh. Yeah. So today, um, we are so lucky to have Andika here with us to shed lights on uh, migrant workers' situation in Malaysia. Andika is research fellow from the Institute of Malaysian and International Studies, and also our field researcher in Malaysia. Hi, Andika. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, hi, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, how are you doing these days? Um, good. Um, well, um, positive development in Malaysia. We have just received the vaccines. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, people have good expectation and more confidence about the situation now in Malaysia. Right. And uh, what uh, what projects are you currently working on right now? Um, quite a number of projects, uh, but I think some of those key projects that we are currently doing on the um, uh, business responsibility on um, human rights and also um, what do you call um, immediate uh, responses from businesses with regards to the COVID-19 and um, a growing exposure on forced labor and child labor being highlighted in the plantation sector in Malaysia. So these are two or three key projects that I'm currently working on. Right. So Mariko, you've been uh, working along together with Andika uh, for these research projects, right? Yeah, it's been nice. And yeah, what you mentioned about your uh, recent projects is quite um, 
some overlaps with our field field research that you have conducted for us. So yeah, really looking forward to hearing about it. Right. So uh, yeah, we would like to talk about the COVID 19s impact uh, on migrant workers in Malaysia. Could you please tell us a bit about the main findings you uh, you based on your research in Malaysia? In Malaysia, yeah. Okay. Um, well, in in that report, um, we we in in Malaysian chapter, we started with the um, understanding the situation even before COVID because we wanted to see if there's a difference in terms of treatment and policy changes before and during COVID-19 outbreak. So I think the first part of that Malaysian chapter, we actually look at the uh, level of vulnerability of workers. And what we found is that uh, it's not, um, not an alien issue in Malaysia. So you can actually see the, um, the exposure on, on forced labor and child labor in different sectors in Malaysia. You can easily find this is before COVID, yeah. You can easily find the um, you know news or, or media coverage with regards to unconducive working and living condition, workers living in container house, living in the in the middle of construction um, sites in the city. So there's the whole lot of um, exposure about uh, workers living in um, overcrowded situation and hygienic situation in Malaysia, and um, we also can hear you know um, the issue of the uh, restriction on, on fundamental rights of the workers including the right to association i think they have the right to join an association but i think there's a restriction on the uh, formation of union in malaysia especially for migrant workers there's issue with the recruitment cost that is very excessive uh, especially from the uh, bangladesh corridor and nepalese corridor as well an issue of effective um, lack of effective grievances and workers are not being paid on minimum wage or non-payment wages for more than three months. So these issues have already been there even before COVID. And on top of that, we also see the um, you know the policy in Malaysia with regards to migrant workers that is keep changing in Malaysia, and that can be seen as, as very reactive in nature. It's like as it's like you know um, like a firefighting approach, very short-term nature, the way that the policy on migrant workers being designed in Malaysia, and that has negative consequences not only for the workers. Yeah, it's also negative consequences for the employers inside, because a changing policy meaning to say that the employers need to adapt that. So there's also confusion. For example, whether employers can engage outsourcing companies, for example. So any policy change needs to be you know uh, immediately adapted by the employer so the more policy being changed i guess there will be more risk of confusion on the employer side and of course for the workers themselves so who will cover levy uh, what is the process of regularization of undocumented migrant workers for example so that has implication yeah so um, apart from the policy so that's what happened before covid mm. and um, for this study However, I just focus in Malaysia. We we actually accept more than fourteen um, nationalities of migrant workers officially work in Malaysia in six sector. Um, but on this for this um, research, because due to the time constraint and also the limitation during the COVID, uh, uh, travel restriction during COVID nineteen, so I only covered for Malaysian chapter Indonesian and Bangladeshi workers. Uh, covered both documented and undocumented migrant workers. We we 
these workers primarily from the plantation and construction sector. So these are the two high risk sectors in Malaysia and only covered peninsula. So we don't, I, I didn't cover the east part of Malaysia, namely the Sabah and Sarawak uh, mm. um, states. But uh, the situation is completely different, meaning to say that the the uh, migrant worker situation in terms of the dynamic are quite different to, to peninsular Malaysia. We don't have Bangladesh and India, for example, in Sabah and Sarawak. So we only have Filipinos and, and migrant uh, Indonesian in Sabah. So during the COVID-19 outbreak itself, so because of that, um, you know, um, the vulnerability that already exists. And we also see policy keeps changing at the same time. And I think mm. the I mean, you can Google it, you can easily find the whole lot of negative impacts on workers. So in my Malaysian chapter, in my study, I only highlighted a number of them where I could gather some uh, field evidence from the workers themselves because we interviewed workers um, in a hybrid uh, method. So some workers we interview over the phone, some workers we interview face to face where we you know, had difficulty to travel. So the uh, some of the negative impacts that we listen from the workers, I think one and um, that is very important is the uh, arrest and detention for both documented and undocumented migrant workers. So even for those documented migrant workers, when we interviewed them, right, we said you already have your passport. Why are you still scared? Why are you still scared of going outside because you got your passport? But they said um, arrest and detention happened nearby their their housing areas. It was a random arrest. So basically, they arrest people first, they bring it into lorry, and then investigate later. So that kind of uh, random arrest um, actually put a lot of uh, risk to the workers, mm-hmm. whether or not they have the uh, legal documentation. And the second part that we, uh, the second issue that we, I, I discovered during the research is the uh, limited access among the workers to the um, healthcare during COVID-19 outbreak as well as the COVID-19 swab tests. I think that because of the uh, fear of them going outside their, their, their uh, accommodation. And the third one is the access to healthcare information. I think that also derived from the barrier in language. So, and at the same time, the healthcare information being circulated by uh, mainly by the Ministry of Health is only perhaps uh, the local language, maybe including Chinese and, and Tamil, but very limited to the migrant workers' language, or the, the workers can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, that would definitely, you know, um, hinder them to better understand how best they can prevent themselves, not only to mm-hmm. access healthcare, but also for their self-prevention, because the information is 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 not reaching them. The uh, issue that you can also see happening in Malaysia during the COVID-19 outbreak was the limited access to food supplies and daily survival necessities for, for migrant workers because some of those workers are you know some of them not especially those not in the essential service they were not allowed to work and many of these workers they are paid on daily bread so basically they don't work meaning you don't have your salary um, so that makes a lot of these workers um, um, apart from not salary but they also have limited access to food and you know uh, necessities. Um, for those migrant workers allowed to work in um, during the COVID-19 because they are in, for example, essential service, maybe for example, one worker working in the rubber factory that produced PPE, for example. 
So these workers uh, uh, were allowed to work, but we also heard that um, we also listened from the workers that some of these workers being being asked to work overtime and very excessive hours of work, more than you know um, uh, what do you call in average 12 hours in a day, but almost like full day in a week. So basically, you don't have one day off during the week. So it's very tiring. And um, mm-hmm. at the same time, some of the workers, um, you know, uh, shared with us that, that there's this uh, lack of um, um, PPEs provided to the workers and the uh, SOP being uh, followed by the company. I think because of the nature of the work that they do, they need to you know, do in two or three more than more than two or three persons. And where the physical distancing is almost like impossible for them to, to do that and the unhygienic accommodation. So the other issues that we also listen from the workers is that some of the workers, um, because they are, some of the workers being retrenched by the employer because the employer, you know, cannot sustain the business. So they have to retrench. And um, once retrenched, there's a greater risk for these workers to become undocumented workers technically because there is no cost. No, no, no employer meaning you are you are you are done so you, you don't have your status anymore and uh, the other last one is the um, consequences to remittance i think consequences to remittance is although i put it last but uh, maybe in the last section during the reflection i will share more on the remittance because whatever it is the the key motivation for workers to come to malaysia is to get money and remit so if they don't benefit that i think there's no, you know, there's no benefit of migrating. So what's the point of migrating without remit money? So I think remit money is an is an important aspect of um, our session with the workers. Right. Thank you. Um, I have uh, also I have a little concern about like undocumented migrant workers. Do you mean uh, does it include also refugees? Uh, refugees who are not documented and they also uh, start working illegally or irregularly uh, in Malaysia and they are, are they also facing the same consequences or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. By by virtue of the um, Immigration Act in Malaysia, refugees, mm. because we don't recognize refugees, we're not state party to the convention. And right, refugees yeah. uh, technically become undocumented by nature of the law. So uh, they can't work. I think that also becomes an issue last time during the COVID-19 outbreak. So when they do arrest, they, they take all. So, the same situation also for uh, refugee card holders or UNHCR card holders where mm-hmm. some of these cases where workers or refugees being arrested first and then later on being verified whether they are, uh, you know, um, their, their card is genuine or not genuine. So, but the, the thing is that during COVID-19, the moment you're being arrested, although for, for further investigation, Meaning to say that um, the risk for infection is high because you see when when you are arrested, you put in the lorry. I don't think one lorry only three four people in one lorry. I mean you know lorry the 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 authorities lorry right. So like the the, the transport. What do you mean by lorry? Is that uh, detention? No, the um not detention. The transportation that carry the the people right. to either detention or the hall where they can right. those people. So the moment you're being arrested, basically physical distancing as is an issue so you may probably okay but because of you being arrested 
no physical distancing, there's a risk for infection. Okay. So that's what we 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 uh, we were worried during that time. Lah. Yeah, I think from your research, Andika, um, it really shows that you know there is kind of lack of um, coordinations between these public uh, health provisions and immigrations law enforcement, and there's like a lot of mixed messages and inconsistency that you were talking about that already existed in the Malaysian immigration policies, but also it was kind of similar situations in terms of um, how the the migrants, um, including the yeah, the refugees and or undocumented people um, could have access to some kind of um, testing or medication. Uh, there is one message that they can, and there is another message coming from this, you know, aggressive um, crackdown on on some this population. So it was really kind of a good, good, ex good example. I mean, good, like very um, clear example of this is why um, we wanted to call for the clear separations of public health measures and kind of immigration um, control. So I think that's really good. If you can kind of tell us a bit more about this, um, these situations and also uh, from your your chapter, we, we read that there has been some, you know, the children also um, detained and there was kind of outbreaks within the detention center because of that. Um, because our research was conducted during summer, so that was kind of the time that it was really happening, I would imagine. Yeah, so I think that was what happened in the in the first, at least the first six months of the MCO or the Movement Control Order when mm. it was launched in February. So there was like um, cross uh, messaging between different authorities. Um, so there were confusion on the test of COVID-19, who will cover the course, for example, either the employers or maybe the workers will cover that. And then uh, um, the, uh, what do you call the instruction, not instruction, was there was a message from the Ministry of Health saying that all uh, people, regardless of your status, should go ahead and meet the, uh, uh, what do you call, the frontliners to get tested in your COVID. But at the same time, I think after one month, the Ministry of Health released that um, like circular. The, um, there was like, um, you know, uh, inconsistent um, messaging also coming from the other different ministry saying mm -hmm. that, well, we will catch you and there's arrest and detention happening at the same time in May. So, uh, but I think after quite some time, I think about six months and seven months in, in starting at least in September, October, November, there were, there were improvement in terms of uh, messaging streamlining among different, um, I think they, they, they learned from that lesson in the, in the past few months. And I think there was like, um, a good coordination between different agencies, how best they can, um, they can um, convey message to the, uh, the different segments of our society during that time. And uh, one thing that, so based on that uh, conversation and lesson learned from the, uh, the first six months, there were several um, good news also coming from the government when they announced that the, um, the test COVID uh, swab test um, course uh, will be covered by the uh, employers. So employers will cover that. But um, at the same time, from the ground that we have uh, heard from the workers, um, there were there were two situations on the ground where workers need to go and get tested and pay that in advance and then reimburse to the company, or there may be some other employers simply ignored that um, that uh, circular. 
So uh, I think for the, for the first category where they need to pay on their own first and then reimburse, the, the challenge is the cost is expensive for COVID-19 testing. So with that barrier, maybe they don't have extra money. They said maybe, okay, maybe no need to, to get tested COVID because we don't have the money in advance. So that kind of challenges are still happening on the ground. But I think from the government side, they make it very clear. They made it very clear on the cost of COVID-19. And in fact, the last few weeks, the government has made the announcement that for the purpose of vaccination, that will cover as well migrant workers. So they including undocumented migrant workers. So that was made clear by the ministry, uh, the minister in charge. So that was uh, good news. But on issues related to the um, outbreak in detention, it was an issue last time in, in, in if I'm not mistaken, from July until November, until the end of the year, there was still you know new clusters created among the workers and then also inside the immigration detention. Um, but I think the prevention, not prevention, the uh, what do you call the remediation inside detention center is is quite manageable. I think they can manage that as long as they keep the accommodation well and then follow the SOP and all that because it's it's quite concentrated area. So in terms of managing the spread, is is not that a big deal for the government, but managing within that within that sphere is 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 a challenge. Right and. You mentioned about like uh, that the employers are responsible or agencies are responsible to uh, distribute uh, how yeah what are what are the consequences for them if if there is such things? I I I'm not sure about the kind of punishment will be met, but I think it was clear that the the employer needs to do that. Uh, but this right. is for vaccination. This is for COVID nineteen testing. The right. vaccination we haven't. I think we just started today the rollout, but I think that will only be for the the. I think the first level will be focusing more on the frontliners. I mm. guess later on they will roll out for the other segments of the society. But for the for the COVID nineteen testing, um, the cost will be covered by the by the uh, employers and also the um, insurance scheme. The insurance scheme. But the the challenge is another challenge is that. How do you how do how do you monitor them? In mm, Malaysia, exactly. we have more than one million of registered companies, employers basically. One more than one million, and we have less than five thousand inspectors, labor inspectors. Mm. Who, who will do that? So we rely very much on the employer's responsibility to do that. That's why mm. I guess in any engagement and awareness raising, employers are the key because after all, you rely on them to to carry that responsibility, and the more good businesses uh, being responsible, I guess, the lesser barriers that we have. I mean, you don't need 1,000 or 10,000 of labor inspectors to check them if they are all good, right? So I think the, 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 the conversation moving forward, I guess, the role of business is very key, it's very important. I mean, there are good businesses wanting to make change and yeah, we can engage them in the future. Right. And what about like the roles of the social, uh, civil society advocacy, like the role of the yeah, social, uh, civil society communities in, in, you know, making making this work as well? Are they are they involved or helping in this distribution on, of a vaccine? Do they have plan on, on helping this and supporting this? Well, on the rolling out of the vaccines, I guess this will be done by the Ministry of Health. 
Yeah. And by the government, I don't think any involvement. I'm not sure, but to my knowledge, right. there's no involvement of CSO or in fact the universities to involve in that. I think it's only the government to do that. And not even the employers, I guess, will be involved in the vaccination program. But maybe there will be outreach with the employers. But um, on the role of CSO, sorry, on the role of CSO, I guess CSO um, plays a very, very important role. Mm-hmm. Um, especially on the um, keep pushing, keep pushing the government to, to, to make their, their promise uh, realized. And also um, where some issues find it very difficult to move because of the whatever the political reason or socio-economic reason I guess CSO are best positioned to uh, because they, they're supposed to be play that check and balance role and I think that's what has been done by the uh, some of the CSOs in Malaysia that keep pushing um, asking for making changes making sure that the workers are given the vaccines for example workers are not caring or covering the cost of the COVID-19 testing and in fact, some of the CSO keep asking the government, making noise. I guess it's it's very important role. Even just, you know, I use the word work, making noise, but I guess that's very important so that government will listen, especially on issue with regards to the uh, repatriation of undocumented migrant workers going on now. Mm-hmm. And also um, people in tension. So basically some CSO raising, raising the uh, concern to the government, making sure that the Human Rights Commission, for example, some um, service providers, uh, NGOs can access the detention center so that they can provide expertise. Right. Mm-hmm. So, on either on COVID-19 or maybe in general healthcare or maybe uh, uh, pro bono legal advice and things like that. So, I think the CSO played that role. I think that role is very very important uh, to keep us uh, open and awake every time that we know um, we may may forget about the progress moving forward, I guess CSO play that role. Very yeah, I, I want to ask um, yeah, just one thing on that, uh, because, you know, from your from your uh, field research, um, I saw some of the testimonies from the workers that you directly spoke to, and they were supported by um, CSOs, especially on humanitarian kind of um, aid, you know, the food, uh, water, really, really essential, basic. Um, but also I, I learned from you that there was a kind of, um, you know, points where the government tried to control the distribution of humanitarian aid from the CSOs, um, but then it didn't really work out quite well. So it opened up again to the, the civil societies to, to step in. Um, just to relating to what you're saying about advocacy from civil society also, but how, you know, how much space available there in the in Malaysian context? for civil societies to act and respond um, both like humanitarian but also as well as kind of political you know um, approach um, if you can just kind of tell me a bit about it yeah I think on the part of the advocacy and campaign I think they can do it anytime I guess there is no restriction of course there, there will be you know some some politicians are saying that you shouldn't shouldn't do that shouldn't do this right but I guess they I mean, the CSO doing that role is, is quite open. I mean, they, they just continue doing that. I guess they see the value of doing that. I think they will proceed. But on the aspect of the service delivery and, and humanitarian intervention, for example, I guess there are spaces there, um, depending on what field. Let's say, for example, if you are in the health sector, for example, there are always um, um, space for them to contribute. 
um, only maybe during the COVID-19 outbreak, there was um, um, there was um, what you call uh, restriction in terms of the SOP and all that. I think they wanted to mitigate the infection or wanted to to prevent the the infection between the workers and all that. That's why they put the um, the SOP. But after that, they realized that especially for migrant workers, what more the undocumented migrant workers, basically authorities don't know where they are. So how do you how do you deliver that foods, for example, that that whatever foods? If you don't know where they are, so they, to a certain extent, rely on information from the CSOs, and I guess that would be the um, the the fine fine line where the where the CSO will will contribute to that space. And yeah. um, I think on the on the government side, I guess they should be open because CSO have their own expertise, they have their own um, uh, potential contribution. I guess they just need a room, and I think um, that should be kept open during COVID and even after COVID that we should we should work collaboratively. Right, and uh, going back to like the research that you did, uh, I would like to actually ask you your personal feelings regarding, uh, you know, you've been um, encountering uh, key informants or people, migrant workers who are facing these problems. Um, how does it feel for you personally? What do you think about it personally? Well, um, I wanted to make it as the last, but I think since you are asking this question, because this question is, is very important, and that's and that makes my my journey doing that research was very very valuable to me, is the fact that when they start telling me that they don't benefit anymore on migration, so that was um, quite a moment for me when they said I, I no longer benefit from the migration for example my salary during COVID-19 reduced more than half I can't do remittance and workers claim that they you know they can even get the same salary they don't need to migrate so that brings me to the question of what does that actually this imply to labor migration supply and demand in Malaysia and what does that affect the uh, migration corridor that's one and secondly, um, what that trend would um, affect the uh, Malaysia's uh, economy because we rely too much from the migrant workers. So you just imagine one of these workers that I interviewed is from Indonesia and he mm. told me that I actually, he told me that I, I was actually intended to go to South Korea because I was cheated. And now I, my second choice was to go uh, to go to Malaysia. And now I in Malaysia. So he regret that he was in Malaysia during my interview, and said they can't do remittance and all that. So you imagine if that kind of messaging will be you know um, um, spread across Indonesia, and majority of prospective migrant workers from Indonesia do not decide to go to Malaysia, the plantation will collapse because our plantation sector 70% rely on, on Indonesia. The same, for, for example, for Bangladesh. So if Bangladesh, for example, the same feeling because of COVID, because of discrimination, so they, they don't want to go to Malaysia anymore. What happens to the economic sector and the manufacturing sector in particular? So I think that kind of question needs to be reflected. <coughs> and I yeah. guess the, um, the COVID-19 outbreak and the way we treated them during this period I guess the lesson needs to be taught to all of us, not just employers, not just government, but all of us in Malaysia to see their contribution. I think the, the problem that we have in Malaysia, we want them, but we don't value them. 
Right. Until you lose them, then you will say, okay, we regret that we, we are now don't have the Indonesian and Bangladeshi workers, right? right. To support the, the industry. I think at the same time, even until now, the, because recruitment of migrant workers being put on hold because people can't can travel, the you can easily find in, in Google, you can just simply search in Google that many of these employers are making noise, uh, making noise now. They complain because they don't have, they, they basically have labor shortage. They can't operate. So when we enter the um, post-COVID-19 uh, era, I mean, the whole lot of this economy need to reopen. They mm. require people to contribute, right? So I think this is this is um, quite a message to me. I guess I think further yeah. discourse is needed to see how trends will will shape in the future because of COVID and how does that reflect the migration corridor? Maybe. People don't want to go to Malaysia, they want to go to Japan. So there will be a change in landscape, right? For example, maybe people wanted to go to South Korea, no longer in, in Singapore, for example. So that will have change in the landscape of migration in the future, I guess. Right. So, um, yeah, uh, like, and how about, uh, how do you see the importance of this cross-regional platform, knowing that, uh, you know, we have different chapters of this book and we talk about Singapore and Hong Kong and uh, South Korea and Taiwan. And apparently, from my understanding, Malaysia has a different different topic that, yeah, there are a lot of demands and it's not only about uh, care workers, but also uh, workers in variety of industries. And al- although there are a lot of demands in here, um, yeah, they're, they're not really protected and not really you know, uh, appreciate it in their work. Uh, how how can we make use of this cross-regional platform and, and, you know, raising more awareness in this? Yeah, I think one of the great value of that um, project is the cross-sectoral learning. So, mm-hmm. because in my Malaysian chapter, I only focus on, you know, um, plantation and, and construction. Maybe right. in the country, they focus more on different sector. So, I think one key learning that we, we should be able to derive from or should should pull it out from that uh, exercise was the cross-sectoral learning because different mm. has different dynamics right. um, that's one thing and second thing about paving the way for collaboration between different corridors so i think the other aspect is looking at different corridors also the same different different dynamics in different for different corridors and also different source and destination countries so i can learn a lot from the south korea uh, sorry the taiwan access the taiwan experience for example and how your recruitment course in in in, uh, in Taiwan being debated in in Taiwan case almost similar but I think different in terms of the value of the course uh, the 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 kind of conversation they are now in in Taiwan with regards to the excessive cost of recruitment and the way workers being recruited in source country um, the third one would be um, of course, uh, facilitate the learning lah for ourselves as researcher, I guess. That would, um, uh, especially for, for different countries. And the third, what, fourth one would be, of course, um, the value is to facilitate data sharing and research sharing among us. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe the fifth one could be, um, that provides me, um, you know, like a kind of a macro understanding, region-wide and cross region, uh, not cross region, region-wide within, I mean, cross region, I, I say cross region, referring to to different sub-regions within Asia. So we have the Southeast Asia, you, have, you know, uh, the East Asia and all that. 
So yeah. that provides the um, uh, better picture because some of the workers from Southeast Asia, their typical destination country is East Asia, like like Japan, Japan and and Taiwan and South Korea. So if you were asking me, I would encourage people from Indonesia. And if I am employers and I am government of Malaysia, for example, I would advocate for the government to hire more those from Japan and and contribute in Malaysia because they have already learned something in, in Japan and it's 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 um it's um you know it's a lesson that we can get it from them and that that could um add value to how we progress forward in Malaysia because a lot of the um Indonesian workers also work in uh, um what do you call this um like automotive sector where Malaysia is also progressing it so let's say you develop talents already Indonesian talents in Japan and mm. we are progressing here in Malaysia we opening up more um our own factory of course we need Thailand. Apart mm. from Malaysian, why not we get get some um, some semi semi skill talents or maybe you know uh, uh, talent with full scale of the skills from uh, working in Japan now working in Malaysia. So I would imagine that cross you know uh, cross migration would happen in the future. Um, <clears throat> the yeah, so that's how I see the importance of the cross regional. Uh, platform but in terms of the the things that I I would actually wanted to see more is on the um, building synergy between um, actors in human rights and also actors in um, um, not specific in human rights but they that have relationship with human rights for example um, um, maybe a subject that relates between human rights climate change and environmental issue for example because we have we have seen study emerging in the area of forced labor and deforestation for example when planters the oil palm planters engage in replanting for example they need more workers so if they need more workers and they um uh, you know hampered by the policy that is very complicated and after all they they hire undocumented migrant workers so there's a, always a link between you know um human rights and deforestation and environmental issues I think we should be able to pull out some lessons from there and making some concrete connection between this. And the good thing is that in human rights we have our pool of talents, experts, and in climate change and environmental issues they have their own, you know, pool of talents there. So I think if we can find a good space or platform where we can build synergy from these two and share resources, I think that would be more, more, um, more inspiring in the future. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think, you know, in here, background is Masawi, but, <laughs> you know, he would probably have the similar thoughts. But I think what we're trying to do is because uh, migrations, people on the move and human rights issues around that is very cross-cutting. It's not, you know, it's very, it comes across all sorts of different issues and different human rights uh, perspectives as well. So um, what you're saying is really important that how we can make synergy and how we can kind of utilize this, these networks that we are kind of start to build um, still on the process, but something that's, you know, we always, always want to keep in our mind. And also I think yeah, what you're saying, Andika, about um, more cross-regional, sort of different corridors of migrations. For example, like I'm coming from Japan, Malaysia is also one of the the 
origin countries of, of migrant workers in, Malay, in, in Japan, yes. uh, probably similarly in other East Asian countries. So this time we focused on Malaysia in perspectives as a receiving country or destination country, but then we can kind of explore a, another perspective, which is Malaysia being the country of origin and what's the impact of, you know, of migrations to these uh, Malaysian people who are migrating to another um, neighboring countries yes yes we had we had we had one million in singapore mm. one million in singapore and we had oh, wow. people in in australia right uh, wow and new zealand and south korea as well i have a number of friends now working in, in i don't know what plantation area or agriculture the sector in south korea and of course in japan yeah i think it's it's good to also look at that mm. then malaysia would you know people in malaysia can relate <laughs> what happens to migrant workers yeah exactly yeah 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 very insightful and very yeah a lot of inputs uh for bbc as well for the synergies and a lot of insights as well from the uh, the research that you undertake uh, undertook and how yeah the current situation is in malaysia as well yeah, thank you. I would like to thank you so much for being here and sharing your uh, your your thoughts and research findings. Would you like to say more, Mariko? No, I think it was really uh, good. Thank you, Andika. And I think we planned from this as well, how we want to develop our networks together. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andika. And thank you, Mariko. Um, yeah, to know more about this joint research and the situations of other major migrant workers destinations in East and Southeast Asia, listen to other episodes of this podcast series on COVID-19 and migrant workers. Thank you.